This is the uh, the last in this mini-series uh, from Genesis, and um, I am glad for that uh, for one reason. Um, the reading load for this has been um, amazing, um, and I'm, I'm ready to take a breather. Huh? I'm ready to go back to my normal reading load, which is which was uh, probably from my wife's perspective more than enough as it is. Uh, so anyway, uh, next week we go back into Philippians chapter 2, uh, kind of picking up where we left off, um, and uh, hopefully that means um, that there's also less for me to say. So there we go. All right. From chapter 3 of Genesis. Uh, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, uh, "We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, uh, neither shall you touch it lest you die." But the serpent said to the woman, "You will not surely die." For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We go to uh, James chapter 1. Back in the back parts of this Bible. After Hebrews, you get James. Did I mistakenly put that? All right. Uh, 12 to 14. Or, no, 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, but he and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. May God bless the reading of His Word this morning. Let's pray. Creator, speak to us, for we are made in Your image. Redeemer, speak to us whom You bought with Your blood. Father, Speak to your children whom you adopted in Christ. Lord, speak to us who claim you as our King and who bow before your authority. Jesus, speak to your bride, expressing your love, and bathe her in your word. Spirit, illumine the Scripture for all who are united in Christ. As we uh, look at our world, if we watch the news, it is hard not to get discouraged. For we see uh, ample evidence of the ways in which people go astray. Uh, whether it's husbands who have killed their families, uh, as recently happened in Colorado, uh, whether it is uh, corrupt officials, whether it's... Um, Wars and conflicts that are taking place in foreign lands, uh, we see evidence of sin no matter where we look. And it can seem to be on the present at points. It's not, thankfully. But this leads us to kind of the question, or it ought to lead us to this kind of question anyway. How did this world end up to be a place where uh, we don't want to be? In many, at many moments anyway. So that's what we're going to look at today. The questions of sin and temptation and ourselves. 
let's start with the question of, was the world always this messed up? Well, I guess it depends on who you're talking to. If we were to go to uh, someone who believes in uh, Darwinian evolution, uh, they would basically uh, say that ethics are established by particular societies uh, in order to further their survival of the species, and there's going to be outliers on either end. And so, yes, uh, the world has always sort of been this difficult, but essentially that's okay, I guess. They don't really go anywhere beyond that. If you're to look at uh, the question of behaviorism, B.F. Skinner and that, all that fun stuff, you would see that people are conditioned to behave in particular ways. And so the answer to the problem is this is how people have been conditioned to behave. It's neither good nor bad, just the way it sort of is. But you can shape people's behavior by conditioning them anew. So... But we want to talk about Scripture. Because I don't find the answers of other worldviews to be really satisfying as to why we experience this world as the mess that we experience and whether or not it was always the, this way. And the Scriptures say that there was a time it was definitely not this way. That there was a time in which everything worked right. Because, as the scripture says in the, the sixth day in Genesis 1, the Lord God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And so God's estimation and evaluation of everything that he created, including man at that point, was very good. Not messed up, uh, not a disaster, not a problem. We see as well in Ecclesiastes 7, see... This alone I found, that God made man upright, but that they have sought out many schemes. So people were created, humanity was created in Genesis 1, to be upright. Meaning, to be able to walk within the boundaries that God had established, and to thrive there. To love those boundaries that God established, to take joy in them, and to be fruitful in the midst of them. However, God made humanity upright but mutable, meaning able to change. As we look at Scripture as a whole, we recognize that Adam, in Luke's Gospel, during the uh, genealogy, is declared to be the Son of God. We're going to get back to that idea in just a little bit. But he's the Son of God who's made in God's own image in order to reflect God's moral image. And so he's made to be upright in that sense, to portray to the rest of creation the character of God. Now, in order to do that, we see that God provided plenty for Adam. We read from Genesis 2, and we heard about how God had given him the fruit of every tree except one. There was plenty of help for Adam because he had, well, he would have a wife, and he was also had a number of animals, some of whom could be beasts of burden, so to speak, to assist him in some of the harder work that he and Eve were not able to do in their own strength. And so we see God's great blessing that is poured out upon Adam and Eve. They are enriched in many ways. Yesterday we went to Annie's apple orchard, and it's amazing to me to, to, to see the the variety of fruit that one can enjoy. I am not a fruitarian. I'm not really big on fruit. Um, I have a, there's a couple of things I really like. But you know, we came home with a variety of different pears. We came home with a couple of different apples. We came home with Asian, let's say pears, said peach. I meant peaches. A variety of peaches and one kind of pear, the Asian pear, which is my favorite pear. But that's not all we came back with. I mean, we, we brought a melon and a watermelon and all kinds of things. That's a picture of the abundance of what God gave Adam and Eve. All of these things that they could enjoy as a, the fruit of their labor. And there was just one thing that they couldn't enjoy. And so as we look at temptation, we need to keep that context of God's goodness and abundant grace given to them. 
But God made Adam and Eve to live within the boundaries that he'd established by his law. So how did things go wrong is is sort of the next honest question that we can come by. Uh, What is the relationship between temptation and sin is a second sort of question that comes to my mind anyway. If we go back to the account in Genesis, we see at the end of Genesis 2 that the man and the woman were naked and not ashamed. Meaning, they had nothing to fear. Uh, They were vulnerable, they were open, it was very good. But at the beginning of chapter 3, we see another person who comes into the picture, and that is the serpent. And it's interesting, it's ironic, it's in a sense, um, great play on words, that the serpent was crafty, sly, subtle. The same root that we find in the word that is used for their nakedness is used for the craftiness of the serpent. One little vowel is all that's different, and it makes a world of difference between these open, vulnerable people and the serpent who is sneaky and shrewd in a not good way. So this serpent comes and finds them and engages Eve, not Adam. Adam should have been exercising dominion over this serpent and crushing its head, but he didn't. But nonetheless, we see that the serpent comes and he begins to question the commandment of God. But in doing so, he's also questioning the goodness of God. He doesn't literally go to what God said, but he he kind of tries to frame it to look at God in the worst possible sense with the idea of you are not to eat of any tree. As though God has placed you in this world, in this garden with a task, but he's cruel and has kept all of this good stuff from being in your belly. Did God really say that? The serpent coyly asks. Eve's response reveals that even now, with just this one question on the behalf of the serpent, that she is beginning to question God's character. We just sang Amazing Grace, and that last verse that we sang, the fourth verse, is my favorite. Because it says, the Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope, ensures. And I'm a person who struggles with good. I am a pessimist, as my daughter told me the other day. It's not a secret. And so I need to be reminded that the Lord has promised good to me because my heart struggles to believe that. And that's where Eve was. She had begun to struggle with whether or not God had given and had promised good to her. She's not just questioning the commandment, but she's questioning the character of God. And it's important for us to recognize the relationship between those two things. Because God's commandments are reflections of His character. And so when we question His commandments, what we're actually questioning is His character. Who He is. Is He really who He says He is? Or is this a big charade? Or if you're British, charade. I listen to too much Pink Floyd. Okay. The serpent doesn't just question God's goodness, but he he questions God's veracity or truthfulness because he goes on to say, you won't die. He's questioning the threat of the sanction against disobedience. It's as if God is lying to Adam and Eve in order to keep them in line and ignorant. And then he offers... This promise. The serpent speaks for sin, so to, so to speak. <coughs> Promises blessings in order to attract us. So your eyes will be opened. 
You will be like God. You're going to know good and evil. And that's the reason why God has told you that you can't have this particular fruit. He wants to keep you dependent on Him. And you don't have to be. Now, Eve does not reject Satan's suggestions. But we see, rather, that she begins to mull them over in her mind. And in the process, she ends up being deceived. Paul tells us this. 1 Timothy chapter 2. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And so deception is what led Eve to transgression. And that's often the case for other people. And we're going to look at that a little more in depth in a bit. But we see that she's deceived and sins. But let's keep in mind that while she was the first one who sinned, she was not the one who plunged the world into sin. That was Adam. Because Adam was made first. And Adam was the federal head. And so Adam's sin plunged not just himself into sin, but rather the whole world into sin as sin and death came into the world through his one act of disobedience, as we see in Romans chapter 5. But let's think about this for a moment. There she is in the garden. She's by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And she's looking at it. She's studying it. She's turning this over in her mind. It's become kind of the earworm for her, so to speak. And she's realizing that looks good to eat. That looks like it will be yummy in my tummy. It is a delight to my eyes. And it is desired or desirable to make a person wise. And so she's seeing this in terms of both, or not uh, threefold. It's pleasing to my eyes. It will be pleasing, I believe, to my belly. And it will be pleasing to my mind because now I'm going to be wise. And God has been keeping this from me. That's the important link in all of this. Sinclair Ferguson notes at length in his book, The Whole Christ, that the problem here is that Eve has begun to separate God from his benefits. Uh, That somehow you can have God and not have his benefits. He's going to make you work for him. And so she, she begins to see uh, that God is a, or see God as a hard taskmaster who may not deliver on his promises. And so she begins to have a legalistic heart. Because she thinks that she must earn these things from the hand of God, as opposed to seeing God as good and God as gracious. This is the root of we see of just, not just legalism, but also antinomianism, which believes I can have God, or rather I can have his benefits and not have God. <coughs> but the separation between God and his benefits, uh, which create this viewpoint of God as hard, stern, unloving, uncaring, and that I must make my own way to get what I need in this world. Tim Keller uh, builds in a similar fashion when he talks about fear and pride as being the two things that are operating within the heart of Eve. She's not conscious necessarily of these things, but we see them going on because she's afraid that God will keep something good from her. But she's also full of pride in the idea that she deserves it. And since God won't give it to her, she must take it. Because she essentially listens to the lie and wants to be God herself. But notice the irony that we find in Genesis chapter 3. Remember, 
The promise was their eyes would be opened, they would be like God, and that they would know good and evil. Well, their eyes were opened. Same word. But their eyes were open open to, to their nakedness. Now they knew their nakedness. Instead of knowing good and evil, they knew their nakedness. And it was a different word that's used. One that stresses their vulnerability in a bad way. They're no longer naked and unashamed. They're now naked and concerned. Because now instead of being a, being in a paradise where there's no threat, they are in a place where there are many threats and they're vulnerable and unable to defend themselves. And one of the threats is that other person with me. Because they're a sinner too. They don't have wisdom like they'd hoped. But they've descended into foolishness as they begin to take these fig leaves and fashion them into clothes oh so quickly. Great irony that is found in Genesis 3. We see similar irony taking place in Jeremiah chapter 2 where it talks about Israel and it talks about all the great blessings God has poured upon Israel. And they have God, they have these blessings, and what they want is the blessings without God and they turn away from Him, away from the fountain of living water and they dig out these own broken cisterns that they think will give them life and only give them death. And so Israel was no different from Adam in all of this. They experienced fear and pride and they committed apostasy in the midst of the covenant. (coughs) Let's fast forward (coughs) up to James chapter 1. The words that are translated test and uh, or affliction and temptation, it's the same word, the context determines which of these two things. They, they all refer to pressure. You're under pressure. When you're tested, you're placed under pressure to see what's inside. You know, you squeeze that toothpaste tube and you see what comes out. Oh, I have toothpaste. I don't have glue. Uh, you, you know, you see what's inside. But these tests can also produce temptations. A pressure felt internally to change one's circumstances. What's important to recognize, as James tells us, that God may test us, but God does not tempt us. God tests us to see what's, what we're made of, but God does not present temptations to us in order to entice us to violate His law. To disobey. What's interesting is, of course, if we look at the whole of Scripture, uh, we see that we are tempted by Satan, uh, that we can be tempted by the world, as well as being tempted internally by our own distorted desires and twisted thinking. Okay? We see that in places like First, first John chapter 2. So, I thought of a temptation. The world may present three musketeers. You see? Now, some of you right now are going, I wish I had one of those. Right? The world may present, or Satan may present this, and some people are really excited about this. I'm not. I don't like three musketeers. There's no hook inside of me that goes, three musketeers i got to have me one of them. Now, if you had a Baby Ruth bag here, that would be a different story. But praise God that Guy did not leave Baby Ruth back there. He left these. So I'm able to walk by and not be bothered by the temptation that they might present to some of you. And maybe I should hide these from you so that you don't get all worked up in a lather about these things. And so there are times in which... uh <coughs> There are external temptations that are presented to us that we have no interest in. 
And sometimes there are ones that we are very interested in. We see as we look at James chapter 1, in this passage that we've, we've uh, read already, that we are passive. That's one of the interesting things about this passage, is that we're passive. Meanwhile, our inordinate desires are active in the process of temptation. It's fascinating, to me anyway. I think it, it kind of captures what Paul was getting at in Romans chapter 7 when he comes to that conclusion. It is not you who sin, but the principle of sin within you. We're passive. We're acted upon in the process of temptation. But for James right now, he's focusing on temptation that arises from within because it's focused on this idea of what Calvin calls inordinate desires that we have. Those are very active in the process of temptation. What's fascinating to me is that Douglas Moo, John Calvin, John Owen, Nancy Percy, Rosaria Butterfield, Thomas Manton, to name but a few, indicate, or seem to indicate, that being tempted is not sin in itself. On the other hand, John Calvin, John Owen, and Thomas Manton also indicate that experiencing temptation is sin. And oh, what you're probably thinking, Steve, weren't those three people part of the other people that you just read? Yes. They are. And it gets back to definitions, because both temptation and sin have multiple definitions that can be used. For instance, just a sin as condition and sin as act. Temptation itself can be used in different ways. <coughs> and so I think some of the lack of clarity you find as you read some of these uh, authors is because in some places they're using it in one way and in other places they're using it in another way. Okay? John Owen does define temptation in his work of temptation. I took some words out in the first part of it, but temptation has a force or efficacy to seduce, to draw the mind and heart of a man from its obedience, which God requires of him, into any sin and in any degree of it whatsoever. So part of what fascinates me about that definition is that temptation has the, has the power to draw people into sin, but it doesn't say that temptation itself is sin. But later, John Owen makes a distinction between temptation and the phrase that he uses from the Scriptures, entered into temptation. And what's interesting, when he begins to use that phrase, and he describes that phrase, he mentions people. Abraham, David, Noah, Hezekiah. Uh, all of these people who have entered into temptation, sinned. And as I read Owen's, uh, I was rereading a lot of that uh, this week, for him, this idea of entering into temptation is not the idea of a random temptation that comes into your mind in which you then kind of go, no, but it's when you, you're, you're beginning to be deceived, as Eve was deceived. You're beginning to be captured, as, as Eve was captured. You're carried off. And so, he, I think he makes a, a, a distinction between the person who... Uh, a temptation arises from within and it's just no, and the person for which it arises and the person goes, hmm. 
And like Eve, begins to dwell upon it. Ponder it. And that person is like basically on tracks headed for disaster by committing particular sin. And so if, we're, if we look at what's going on here in James chapter 1, how I've sort of put this together, I, I think you've got there's, there's this idea of he's assuming our corrupt nature, our sin as a condition, and that sin as a condition produces these desires, these inordinate desires, and those inordinate desires, if we allow them to exist or, or continue, lure us or deceive us that they might capture us so that we are tempted and then sin. I heard a long sermon on different lures for different kinds of fish. <laughs> but that's that's part of the idea that's here. We don't need to go through all of this, but the, the idea of a lure... If you're going to be successful as a fisherman, you have to have the right lure for the kind of fish you want to catch. You have to have the right bait on it. And so, inordinate desires present the right bait for us. You know, because here's the fish hiding. I used to do bass fishing. Obviously, I'm not fishing anymore. So, the bass likes to hide in the weeds. And if you're going to get the fish out of the weeds, you've got to present that tasty morsel that he can't resist. And so you toss that in there, and, you're, and then there comes this the bass and says, Mmm, that looks good to me, chomp. And now the hook carries it away. Unless you're me and you pull at the wrong moment. I'm a lousy fisherman. I will die if the economy crashes and I have to live off of fishing. Okay, I'll just die. Period. I can't catch diddly squat. Maybe I need to get a gun and shoot things. I can do that. Um, so something is is seen as good and desirable, and then there's the hook that's in it that captures people away. For instance, not candy bars this time. Until recently, this compact disc by Daniel Amos was a collector's item. It was hard to find. Okay, I I bought this right before they released, they announced the uh, the remastering and everything. And I'm like, oh, figures. I buy it now. They redo it. But um, it took me a long time to find it and to afford it. Um, it's classic for people like me, not for people like you. Okay, But if I saw this in your house, I would be attracted to it in a way that three musketeers would have no hold on me whatsoever. This would be an enticement. And I might say, can I borrow that? And you might say yes. And I might forget to return it to you. (laughs) I'm hoping that doesn't happen. I would be tempted to do that. Because this is something that attracts me, that I'm interested in, that I want. And so that inordinate desire to possess this thing would take, take me over and I, if you said no, might try to slip it into my bag, the wretched human being that I am. Why does this matter? Let's go back to the corrupt, the corrupt nature that from which everything comes. <coughs> Jeremiah 17 mentions that the heart is deceitful above all things. And when you look at the, the worldly wisdom of self-actualization, which says follow your heart, trust your heart. See, it doesn't come in terms of that big word that I use, self-actualization, but that's the phrase they use. Trust your heart, follow it. Nothing could be more disastrous to you than to trust and follow your heart, which is often filled with inordinate desire. It will lead you into danger. So the principle of sin works in us to doubt God's goodness and to seek sin's pleasure. Leads us to another question. Who's able to fix this mess and how? 
Well, if we were to look to secularism, for instance, we would see that the answer is education and or technology, which will resolve most of these problems. And I look at that and I go, politicians are amongst the most corrupt people in the world and they're pretty educated. And they're like lawyers and stuff. So I don't think education alone is real. I mean, I'm not against education, but education doesn't solve the problem of the heart of man. That's all I'm saying. But if we go to Matthew, at the end of chapter 3, at his baptism, we have um, the Spirit descending upon him like a dove, and we hear the voice from the cloud which declares, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So let's, let's think of that for a sec. He's the Son of God. He is beloved. And He's well pleasing to the Father. Okay? This Messiah, upon whom the Spirit comes and rests, is led by that very same Spirit into the wilderness for a period of deprivation, meaning he's going to fast for 40 days, and then he's going to be tempted by the evil one, the tempter, the accuser of the brethren. Satan comes to tempt the hungry son. Now, the one, the one thing that's different here is that for Jesus, the temptation was external. He didn't have hooks like I have towards particular sins. But tempted he was by the evil one. Satan kind of addresses the idea or, or the, the issue of his identity. He begins with that first one. If you're the son of God. The implication being, why are you so hungry? Doesn't a father feed his children? You must not be the son of God, but... If you are, then why don't you just turn that bread, uh, sorry, that stone into bread? Think of belovedness. What do you do when someone is beloved to you? Every parent knows. I step in front of the bus so it doesn't hit my kid. And so what does Satan do? Come to this high lofty place. Cast yourself down because you know that your Father will send angels to deliver you. Again, he's testing that idea of the beloved Son of God. And if that is actually true, Jesus, if you do this, your Father's going to bail you out. The third temptation has to do <coughs> with being well-pleasing. If, God, if you are well-pleasing to your Father, won't He reward you? Won't He give you good stuff? Jesus, I don't see you with good stuff. You're an itinerant rabbi. You've got nothing. He promised you in Psalm 2, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus, He has not given that to you. Jesus, I will. If you bow down and worship me. And so we can see the connection between the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness in multiple ways. And these are some of the ways in which it, it plays out. He's promised everything. Will he apostatize? I read this week about Henry of Navarre. Not someone you probably have heard about. <clears throat> Lucette may have heard of him. He was a Protestant nobleman in France. He was offered the throne of France. There was a rub. Become Catholic. And basically he is quoted as saying, what's a little mass when the throne of France is at stake? And so he became Henry IV king of France by renouncing his faith doing what Jesus refused to do. But here we have the eternal Son of God, the second Adam, the true Israel, 
who's going to succeed in his temptation where the first Adam failed and the, and the first Israel failed. Now let's keep in mind, Jesus does this under deprivation, whereas Adam had everything. And even though Israel was in the wilderness when it was tested and tried, Israel had what they needed. Manna every day. Their shoes didn't wear out. Their clothes didn't fall apart. God was providing for them in the midst of the wilderness. He was taking care of all of their enemies. They had nothing to worry about, and yet they turned away to pursue a golden calf, among other things. And so while they failed in these these places of prosperity, Jesus succeeds in his temptation in a place of deprivation. Jesus prevailed prevailed specifically by faith in the word of God. He He keeps quoting from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. But not only that, Jesus succeeds in the fact that he was our representative. Just as Adam the first represented us in the Garden of Eden and failed so that we have sin and death, so Jesus, Adam the second, has succeeded so that we can receive the blessing of God even though we have disobeyed. And so Jesus not only obeys in the face of temptation, but Jesus also goes to the cross suffering the consequences of our fear, of our pride, our disobedience. Jesus suffered the consequences of our temptations, of the deceptions that we fell prey to. And so we see redemption for people who have failed. Now, if we look at that letter to James, we recognize that while it's a, that passage on temptation is applicable to non-Christians, it's actually written to Christians. And as you read the whole rest of James, you realize that Christians experience temptation too. It's not like we come to Jesus and now life is glorious. I'm no longer tempted to steal CDs that, that I, I can't find anywhere else. We experience temptation. We see the same thing in Galatians chapter 5. Again, written to Christians, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And so we experience this struggle. The Christian life is not an easy life, but is one that is caught up in this struggle within our own hearts to do right and to do wrong. And we have the principle of sin at work in, in us, but we also have the power of the Holy Spirit at work. And so there's conflict. And we experience it. Don't we... Doesn't that resonate with us? It, it ought to. But we see that the grace of God is at work as well. Titus 2 talks about how the grace of God has appeared to giving salvation to all kinds of men. And part of what it does is it instructs us like a teacher, like a math teacher or an English teacher or a science teacher. It instructs us how to say no to ungodliness and worldly desires. And so part of what the gospel does is the gospel teaches us to say no to the temptations we experience by grounding us in our gospel identity and reminding us of God's goodness. That we had a Savior who died for us. That's evidence of God's goodness. He didn't leave us to destruction, but He rescued us and brought everything with Him. So John Owen in his book tells us to consider (coughs) our faithful Father to consider the gracious Son, to consider the powerful Spirit as being behind all of those Gospel promises so that they are not 
empty promises to us. But in fact, the Lord has promised good to us and He will give us all that good in Jesus. It is not a good you're going to earn, but has been earned for you. And so, all of those things that you're seeking through your disobedience, you don't have to seek. You just have to seek Jesus. Who brings all those 10,000 charms with Him. And so Owen talks about when we encounter temptation that we are to mortify that temptation. We are to rely upon Christ's power and the Holy Spirit as it says in Romans 8 and put these things to death. We are to rely upon His wisdom not our wisdom. Martin Luther puts it this way, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. I love that quote by Luther. You can't stop temptations from flitting into your head, but you can stop them from finding a home there so that you become deceived and captured by them. And that's the no, the mortification. The resisting of them because God is greater, God is better. And it's always put within the context of the gospel. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. How do you have the Spirit? Because Jesus has graciously given you the Holy Spirit when you believed. Romans 13, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. How does it ground this idea of putting these things to death in the fact that you have put on Jesus? That you are united to Christ? This is not something you're, you're doing in your own strength, wisdom, or anything else, but it's because you're in Christ. That is the only way we can resist temptation. And so Christ endured temptation and the cross to deliver us from sin's penalty and power. I was a precocious child at times, and so if we channeled my inner precocious child, I would probably say, will we sin after we die? It's a legitimate question. And we would say that for those who believe and are united to Christ, we will see Him and we will become like Him. We see that in 1 John 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. We're already God's children by adoption. And what we will be, future, has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And I cannot understand how to explain this to people aside from the fact that when we see Jesus, we will be instantaneously transformed into the perfect image of God just like Him. Which means there will be no more hooks in your heart for temptation. There will be nothing that interests you anymore in terms of things you shouldn't do. Sin will no longer appear attractive to you because Christ is all. We will be freed from the presence and practice of sin. We will be immutably righteous in Christ, forever wanting to do the right thing, whereas right now, we're torn between the right things and the wrong things. And so Christ will perfect all He purchased with His blood at His return. And so as we think about this, we can kind of put it this way. Satan lied Adam sinned, everyone died. That's basically what it all boils down to. All of Adam's children are sinners, given over to distorted desires and to twisted thinking. This manifests itself in a number of ways, including broken relationships, whether it's parent-child, spouses, friends, or neighbors. 
That's how it manifests itself. And it can manifest itself in an increasing measure. Because we see right in, in, the, in chapter 4 of Genesis, Cain kills his brother. It leapt from taking the wrong fruit to, I'm killing you. And we see it expanding into war. But Jesus was the second Adam, a second representative who took on flesh to endure temptation for us and to bear the curse that we have, we deserve because of our frequent disobedience. But this same Jesus also gives us the Spirit so that we know we're loved now. We know that we're accepted now. And in order to teach us to say no to those distorted desires we still experience, to say no to the twisted thinking that we still have, but that Jesus is making you or remaking you in His image, even as you struggle with temptation and sin now, but that when you see Him, it will all be done and you will struggle no more. So there's good news there. And on that we end. Father, help us not to be (coughs) um, wearied by the fact that we experience temptation. Help us not to think that that means that somehow there's something wrong with us, that we're not loved of you or anything like that. But to remember that even Jesus, who was your beloved Son, who was well-pleasing, experienced temptation. Father, uh, help us to continue to seek Jesus in the midst of temptation. Jesus as our refuge. Jesus as our Redeemer. Jesus as our sanctification, our wisdom, our power. That we don't just listen to the lies of, of our desires, but that we go to Jesus for truth. To expose the lies for what they are, so that we're not captured and brought places we never intended to go. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.